This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with spiritual blackmail, the gospel comes to Thessalonica, noble Bereans, Paul in Athens Part 1, and Paul in Athens Part 2. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. There is no common ground possible between the people who believe in objective truth and cultural Marxists. Parents, social media is undermining you left and right. I mean, it's like dumping a bucket of termites outside your house every day and then thinking, it'll be fine. They won't mess with my house. Feminism has told us that our our children are the obstacle to our happiness instead of a means to our happiness. You know, when we take those tender and important and precious relationships away from women, they're not going to be more fulfilled without it. You know, Luther said on his deathbed that we're beggars all. He could have said, we're all dogs receiving crumbs from our master's table. This is Mark from Michigan, and I am a lawnmower listener. We love issues, etc. What could have prompted the comments from Pope Francis recently speaking in Lisbon that much of the U.S. Catholic Church is, his word, backward, that many U.S. Catholics have replaced faith with ideology? And what in the world did he mean by a correct evolution in the understanding of questions of faith and morals? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Wednesday afternoon, August the 30th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll talk about media coverage of recent remarks made by Pope Francis on morality and the evolution of doctrine. Terry Mattingly of Get Religion will be our guest, and we'll spend some time with Pastor Jeff Hemmer comparing the biblical view of masculinity with Andrew Tate's teaching on masculinity. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center of Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So what exactly did Pope Francis say in this private meeting with Jesuits there in Portugal, and why aren't these remarks receiving much coverage in the mainstream press? Well, the problem is we know what he said, but we can't answer your question about what exactly did he mean. In your introduction, you asked a question that I think journalists should ask and then attempt to answer, which is, why now? I think you would have to say that this was a logical set of remarks in an address to his fellow Jesuits, because Jesuits are known right now as kind of the people grabbing the wheel of the ship to attempt to steer it in a rather different direction. That's the reputation. There are conservative Jesuits, but there are way, way more progressives, especially in Europe and in the United States. So he's speaking to Jesuits here, you know, and he is a Jesuit, of course, and Jesuits are known for kind of testing the limits to find out what kind of compromises can be made. So the bigger question is, what did he say about the need to change doctrines related to faith and morals? 
And there is a lot of material here. And to seek clarity, reporters would need several things. And I do not envy reporters who attempt to do what they have to do after the speech, or at least what I think they should do. They should try to find out what he did mean. That requires access to the Pope, which is not going to happen. It requires a lot of ink, which once again is why these questions are going to be pursued more in Catholic media than they're going to be in, for example, the, the only real mainstream report about this that I have found, which is the Associated Press. It's not a bad report. It even makes one crucial point that we can discuss looking at the AP story. One very important thing that kind of is the door toward future content for reporters, because I think their instincts are correct, but you can't build a story without material to quote from other people. And these kinds of remarks are not going to inspire brave clarity from, oh, the Cardinal of New York, or the man who most think should be a Cardinal in Los Angeles. And lately, it's not going to inspire candor from the Pope's allies here in the United States in cities such as Newark, Chicago, and San Diego. They're not going to be anxious to talk about this. I kind of agree with him that U.S. bishops are too rigid, but nobody's going to get into specifics because when you start covering doctrine, specifics really matter. Yet that requires, like I said, quotes, time, access, and inches of type. And the American press isn't going to, to dedicate those resources to this kind of a story. I think we've seen that at this point. Here's to me the question that we've asked several times in podcast. Why aren't these remarks drawing more praise from the American political, cultural, and even religious left? Why didn't gay rights groups call a press conference to celebrate these remarks? including gay rights groups in the Catholic Church. That's because these things haven't been carved into stone yet. It's very hard to debate fog. And to some degree, these remarks have a lot of fog in them, which is another way people would say that Jesuits tend to communicate. I have all kinds of questions. What I don't have is answers. And I think... These remarks, the timing, certainly point to the fact that the upcoming Synod on Synodality is going to head initially, at least in a very European and American, American direction, in terms of proposing changes on some very high-profile doctrines of the Church. And if not changing the doctrines, changed with how bishops, archbishops, and cardinals deal with these issues pastorally. It's a big word in the modern church. We're not changing the doctrine. We're just asking our pastors to be more flexible. 
I'm sorry if that is as vague as I know it sounds, but that's the big part of this story is its vagueness. One of the things that kind of came to mind for me is if Pope Francis is going to criticize much of the U.S. Catholic Church for what he called this backwardness, then I think a legitimate question is, okay, so where in the world are Catholics doing it the way you think it should be done? And my mind immediately went to Germany. Mm-hmm. To Europe. This is a very European pope. Even though we think of him as being from South America, his culture, his heritage, his family lineage, etc., is very European. And when you look at his allies, they tend to be European or the people who most agree with what's happening in Europe. And what's happening in Europe is exactly what is setting the conservative U.S. bishops, what is igniting their comments. They're watching what's happening in Germany and Europe in general, and they know that one of the leaders of what's happening in Germany and Europe is the man who's in charge of setting the agenda for the upcoming Synod on Synodality, the person who has his hands once again on the steering wheel of what some are calling Vatican 2.5 or a rough draft of Vatican III. And we have news here. I mean, just, and here's another story that hasn't received any attention, but the Archbishop of Berlin has just released a letter in which he assures all of his priests, deacons, and lay pastoral workers that he will not take any disciplinary action against them if they do some kind of blessing service for couples, and here's his words, couples who cannot or do not want to marry sacramentally. And this follows the pre-synod on synodality, path of synodality in Germany, in which they openly called for same-sex blessing rights of some kind. Now, they're quickly saying we're not talking about redefining the sacrament of marriage, but we're talking about priests performing rituals that look an awful lot like marriage ceremonies and certainly will kind of be seen as that by activists in the church. And he quotes, you know, that Pope Francis agreed with the 2021 Vatican Declaration that, quote, the church does not have and cannot have the power to bless unions of persons in the same sex. Yet he has just as many things to quote Pope Francis that point kind of in the direction that he wants to go. There's a, a passage in this letter from the Archbishop of Berlin. Um, Every blessing promises God's grace and help us help to us people who are and remain weak. Blessing, therefore, does not have the meaning of legitimizing, endorsing, or approving. He said, as the blessing, we remain guilty people who need God's uplifting grace for our life's journey. This basic statement connects all people, even those who ask for blessings for their relationships that have not been or cannot be formed sacramentally. I think the ultimate question here, much like what Pope Francis has said about allowing people who have been divorced 
and remarried outside the church to begin receiving communion. And, of course, his very clear endorsement in symbol or in action of controversial American Catholics such as Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi, I think you're seeing a move towards saying that pastorally these people can go to confession and the church can't agree with their actions, but we should say they're okay and let them proceed on to receiving communion. I think, once again, this is really all about what the church in the synod will say about the communing of people who openly and publicly clash with the church on those old doctrines which Pope Francis seems to be saying need to be redefined in some way, maybe, sort of, but don't quote me on that. So does that get us to a better understanding of what the Pope may have meant when he said a correct evolution in the understanding of questions of faith and morals? Well, I mean, to some degree, he seems to be hinting that doctrines evolve when popes say that they can. And he keeps, there was one of the most fascinating phrases in this whole thing was when he said that the American church wants to cut the modern church off from its roots in the early church, which is fascinating because I think that's exactly the opposite of what the American critics would say. And in particular, I mean, the early church is very clear on subjects related to marriage, family, sexuality, abortion, same-sex activity, etc. So what kind of evolution is he talking about here? The AP story, I think, one of the things that I believe it does well, let me see if I can find actual passage where he's tr Associated Press is trying to describe these bad Catholic Americans. Francis's comments were an acknowledgement of the divisions in the U.S. Catholic Church, which has been split between progressives and conservatives who long found support in the doctrinal papacies of St. Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI, particularly on issues of abortion and same-sex marriage. Now, the AP, now there's no one being quoted here, so this is the editors of AP. Many conservatives have blasted Francis's emphasis instead on social justice issues such as the environment and the poor, while also branding as heretical his opening to letting divorced and civilly remarried Catholics receive the sacraments. What's really fascinating is I have seen almost nothing specifically from important conservatives from the church, especially not those in the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference, disagreeing with Pope Francis on issues of social justice, the environment, and the poor. In fact, soon after Francis became Pope, and some of these controversies began, I wrote a column in which I listed a series of quotations, and it was, who said this, Francis or Pope Benedict the Sixteenth? 
and it addressed all kinds of issues, poverty, war, violence, social justice, hunger, and all of this. And the whole point of this was that the language of the two popes were almost identical. In fact, if anything, Pope Benedict went further than Pope Francis seemed to be going. There isn't conflict here between John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis when it comes to these issues that are talked about by the Associated Press. Now, if I did a column in which I said, who said the following, Pope Francis or Pope John Paul II, that would be easier. Here you have, you have seen in the United States the situation is not easy. There is a strong reactionary attitude. It is organized and shapes the way people belong, even emotionally. I would like to remind these people that a word I can't pronounce in distremo, being backward looking is the translation, is useless and we need to understand that there is an appropriate evolution in the understanding of matters of faith and morals. That's what you were alluding to earlier. Change develops from the roots upward, growing in accord with the criteria that he's talking about here. Our understanding of the human person changes with time, and our consciousness also deepens. And other sciences and their evolution also help the church in this growth in understanding. The view of church doctrine as monolithic is erroneous. But some people opt out, they go backward, they are what I call, and he uses that word again. When you go backward, you form something closed, disconnected from the roots of the church, and you lose the sap of revelation. Now, if you contrast that with one of the most famous passages from Pope John Paul II, in what I believe conservatives would consider his most important encyclical, his Veritatis Splendor, which is the splendor of truth. And it's an entire massive treatise by John Paul in which he's talking about the need to defend the concept that there are truths taught by the church which are permanent, transcendent, and eternal. So who said this, Francis or John Paul? Today, it seems necessary to reflect on the whole of the church's moral teaching with the precise goal of recalling certain fundamental truths of Catholic doctrine, which in the present circumstances risk being distorted or denied. In fact, a new situation has come about within the Christian community itself, which has experienced the spread of numerous doubts and objections of a human and psychological, social and cultural, religious, and even properly theological nature with regard to the church's moral teaching. It is no longer a matter of limited and occasional dissent, but an overall and systematic calling into question of traditional moral doctrine on the basis of certain anthropological and ethical presuppositions. I'm going to keep reading for a second because this is important. At the root of these presuppositions is the more or less obvious influence of currents of thought which end by detaching human freedom from its essential and constitutive relationship to truth. Thus, the traditional doctrine regarding the natural law and the universality and permanent validity of its precepts is rejected. 
certain of the church's moral teachings are found simply unacceptable, and the magisterium itself is considered capable of intervening in matters of morality only in order to exhort consciences and to propose values in the light of each individual will independently make his or her decisions and life choices. Now, that's John Paul II. That's a long quote that's not headline friendly. But if you go on, you end up with shorter, punchier things like certain currents of modern thought have gone so far as to exalt freedom to such an extent that it becomes an absolute, which would then be the source of values. This is the direction taken by doctrines that have lost the sense of transcendence or transcended or which are explicitly atheist. Now, that's John Paul. And I think to some degree, the fact that Pope Francis in actions appointed to the John Paul Center for Family Life, etc. at the Vatican, a number of people who are direct critics or even opponents of some of these teachings of John Paul II is an action that has upset many conservatives, yes, loyal to John Paul II and Benedict XVI. But what we're hearing here is an actual discussion of how do you change and evolve centuries of Catholic moral teachings on topics on which the early church and the church fathers, and I would add the modern Catholic catechism, one of the, the great treasures of the John Paul II Benedict XVI era. How do you change them? And does a pope have the right to change them? Or now, does a synod, not a Vatican III, not an actual church council, but can a synod begin to propose changes along the lines those that are currently being enacted in Germany as a part of the Synod process. Wow, put that in a 500-word story for the Associated Press. It's not possible, but that's where the story's going. Terry Mattingly is our guest. We're talking about media coverage of recent remarks made by Pope Francis on morality and the evolution of doctrine. Do we have to wait until the Synod on Synodality to find out if this is what the Pope is planning? We'll talk about that next. I think satire and humor are worth defending. I think free speech is worth defending, and I think it's a tool that we need to use in the church. Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Humor is our tool. Humor is something that God created. The left just co-opted it for all the terrible comedies and stuff that you see and all the vulgar stuff coming out of Hollywood. It's ours, and we're going to reclaim it, and I think that's one of the, one of the missions of the Babylon Bee. The left wants to take down humor. The left demands that things that mock them and point out how ridiculous they are being get torn down. But we're just going to keep answering that with more and more humor. And I think it starts here. It starts in the church. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves. 
You can watch and listen to a recording of Kyle Mann's presentation, Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, from this year's Making the Case Conference. For a donation of $300, you can download an audio and video recording. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Church's Music from the 20th Century. The 17th century. The 11th century. The 8th century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Folks, when you make a donation of $300 to Issues Etc. by Labor Day, we'll send you video and audio recordings of our 2023 Making the Case conference, which includes a one-hour Q&A with journalist Mark and Molly Hemingway. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385, and we'll send you a link, a username, and a password to the recordings of this year's Making the Case conference. Terry Mattingly is our guest. We're talking about media coverage of recent remarks made by Pope Francis on morality and the evolution of doctrine. So, Terry, do we have to wait Because we're talking here about a source, Pope Francis, who's essentially a clam when it comes to media access, and we only get these kind of offhand remarks from him. Do we have to wait until that synod on synodality to learn if what Pope Francis intends here is to actually signal a change in teaching in the Church? Well, I think that there will be access granted to some media right before the synod. Just as recently, I forget the exact subject, but the Pope, he made some controversial remarks and he immediately granted a large interview to kind of clarify these things. I think the more important question is, is there any weakening in the role that European leaders play in the Synod itself? And looming behind that question is, once again, will Rome ever discipline the shepherds, especially the ones in red hats at the level of being cardinals, will Rome ever discipline any of these people that are even contradicting the Pope's own words from 2021? Will we see some sort of clarity that says that's not a proper evolution of doctrine? That's contradicting the catechism. In other words, as long as it's conservatives saying that, the Pope can dismiss it as a part of this divide, a divide that the Pope has stressed has something to do with ideology. Now, let me ask you, when you 
see the word ideology in this context. What do you think, just as a news consumer, as a theologically educated man, what do you think ideology means in this context? Well, I think he means politics. Yes. And that's why that quote is going to get used over and over. I think what he's saying is these are mean people who want to say bad things about Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and lots of Catholics in America who agree with him. There's no question that America is divided on these topics among Catholics. The question to some degree is what parts of the church are growing, what parts of the church are producing converts, what parts of the church are producing priests, for that matter. I think you'll remember an anecdote I used before about a dialogue that a, an Anglican bishop friend of mine recalled from a meeting as a part of kind of one of the peace peace where there is no peace gatherings of Anglican bishops a decade or two ago over, of course, homosexuality, divorce, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. And they were sitting in circles with bishops from Asia and Africa and the growing churches in those regions and bishops, lots of bishops because they have more money to get to these meetings from America and Britain and the churches that are progressing in doctrine, to use the Pope's phrase. But the Americans were talking about how wonderful things were and how they're evolving on these issues and they're learning to listen to people and accompany them and help them on their journeys and all that kind of language. And an African bishop, according to this American bishop friend of mine, an African bishop finally just like waved his hands and cut one of the American bishops off and said, where are your converts? Where are your children? And where are your priests? And that just kind of shut the whole discussion down at that point. And I think to some degree, it will be interesting to see if the Synod tries to argue that if the church evolved in the direction of the catastrophically shrinking churches of Europe and the moderately declining or at least, I would say, mixed picture of what we see in North America, if the Catholic Church is going to evolve in that direction, Will the Synod argue that that is the key to rebounding in terms of converts, children, and priests? Is this the way forward to the church showing the kind of new growth that Francis loves to use as an image? What does new growth mean to him? That would be a good question, that if someone had a candid, lengthy interview with him, that would be good to ask. But this thing about backward, I think there's no question that the press will view that as a comment about American politics in the Donald Trump versus Joe Biden era. And that's that. And we know who the good guys are in that, and we know who the bad guys are. And that doesn't exactly answer the question of a lot of American bishops 
who are not easy to describe in partisan political terms, but they are trying to get clarity on how to handle some of the actions and the words of people such as Biden and Pelosi. Let me remind our listeners, while the stories always focus on what Joe Biden has or hasn't said about abortion, I've argued for several years now that from a canon law perspective within Roman Catholicism, the more important question is why the press never brings up the issue of Joe Biden serving as vice president, actually performing same-sex marriage ceremonies for members of the White House staff, and openly stating that the church's teachings on that topic are wrong and need to change. To me, that's much more explicit and concrete than what Biden has said at different parts in his life about abortion, where he used to be kind of somewhere in the middle, and now he's basically a loyal Democrat for the protection of abortion rights under all circumstances at all stages of conception. The question of growth raised a thought in my mind that is, it was either Pope John Paul II, or probably more likely Benedict, who began his pontificate, it was Benedict, Mm, by opining that the church would likely have to get smaller to remain faithful. Yeah. That seems 180 degrees offset from Pope Francis. Yeah, that was an interview early in his priesthood. The sermon that he gave that raised everybody's specter was... Spectre, that's a strange word. It's not what I meant to say. The sermon he gave that caused a lot of questions for people was when he preached right before the cardinals went into conclave, the conclave in which he was elected. And he was the person who was supposed to kind of do the marching orders or the call to action for that. And boy, he blasted concepts of changing truth and a refusal to talk about moral absolutes and the faith of the fathers that the churches defended through the years. And then he also, in words that were immediately interpreted in terms of the sexual abuse scandal, he talked about the filth in the modern church that had to be cleaned if there was some way for the church to go forward. And (laughs) a lot of people, when he delivered the speech, said, Now, there's a man who doesn't want to be elected pope. There's a man who knows he's going to be offending a lot of the people in that audience. And instead, they went into conclave, and he ended up being elected as pope. And that was an interesting moment. But that College of Cardinals has been massively, massively changed through the appointments of Pope Francis. And in an American context, the one that everybody talks about is taking the leader of a rather minor American city, relatively speaking, like San Diego, and taking a man who has always been a crusader for liberal and progressive causes, including on morality 
marriage, sexuality, etc. Putting him in the College of Cardinals, raising him over his archbishop, I mean, this was a bishop in San Diego, raising him into the College of Cardinals over the archbishop of Los Angeles, the largest branch of the church in the United States, and a Latino to boot, and the leader of the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference, denying him, Archbishop Gomez, a red hat once again while giving it to one of the fiercest critics of Gomez. These are the kinds of actions that pour gasoline on these disputes, even though at the same time, I'll be the first to admit, because I've called attention to it at Get Religion in columns, Pope Francis has had some very strong things to say about abortion. He's had some very strong things to say about gender change ideology, at one point basically saying that that's the work of Satan and the demonic. He's had some strong things to say. The synod is going to be important. The degree to which any of these foggy, vague battles about words Will any of it result in discipline or any kind of restraining of the European church and the aspects of the North American church that are at the heart of the Pope Francis era in the Roman Catholic Church? Finally, with just a minute or two here, what are the characteristics that many in the mainstream media would like to see in a pope? And how well does Francis fit that? vision? Well, he serves up the occasional headline or soundbite. He speaks off the cuff a lot, and when he speaks off the cuff, that's seized by the press, and I would say it's important to seize the off-the-cuff remarks, because to some degree, he's saying things that are in his own mind and his own heart that were not in a script approved, perhaps, by Vatican handlers. So, I think to some degree they would like to hear him risk schism with explicit changes that hint at the future. Married clergy, of course, would be a big one, but you're not going to see that. What you're going to see instead is some form of female diaconate. And there may even be a distinction between the altar deacons that have the ability to become priests and permanent deaconesses. There's going to be some sort of big symbolic change during this synod. If Francis is healthy and strong and remains at the wheel for the next couple of years, and of course there's been speculation about his health, so all eyes will be on what explicit actions he takes, including whether or not he disciplines any of these people that are causing real schisms in the European churches. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center of Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. When we return, we're going to talk about God's gift of the marriage bed with Pastor David Peterson. He's author of a recent column for the Lutheran Witness Online titled Reclaiming the Marriage Bed.
We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Smartest listeners in radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. St. Peter encourages us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Rinsel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.